Spirit of Design delves deep into the unseen elements of design and holistic sustainability. Join us, Amy and Anya, for open conversations with creatives, scholars, activists, and others to envision alternative design futures that are diverse, inclusive, community-centric, and in symbiosis with all life on this planet. back to the Spirit of Design podcast. So today, Amy and I will be joining each other to have a chat about what sustainability means to us, particularly holistic sustainability. And to be able to go into that, we're going to be introducing you to the five elements, five elements that we deem are the foundational pillars of sustainability that we created through our platform over the past year of Sustainability 5.0. So I'm so excited to be going into this conversation with you today, Amy. Thanks for joining me. Me too. Awesome. So why could it possibly be important to define sustainability? We hear this word a lot. We probably will be hearing it a lot. It has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. And unfortunately, a lot of the current sustainability definitions are mostly surface level and that trickles into the enactments of what sustainability looks like. So at Sustainability 5.0 and the Spirit of Design podcast, this podcast, we're really trying to explore and unpack what a holistic sustainability might look like. Unfortunately, many current sustainability definitions are quite anthropocentric, meaning they revolve around the human being at the center. And they don't include the earth or other species as living entities that have just as much intrinsic value as humans do. For example, in 1987, the UN gave this broad definition about what sustainability meant by defining it as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So as you can see, it's all centered around the human. It's also quite interesting to see recent sustainability developments, particularly around the UN Sustainable Development Goals that were launched in 2015, where only two out of those 17 SDGs actually talk about caring for other forms of life. The rest of those SDGs are very centered around development for humans and continuing this worldview where humans are at the epicenter of everything instead of acknowledging that we are only one small part of this ecosystem that we are part of at the earth and that care for the land and other species needs to be at the forefront of sustainability. Sustainability is, can also be very Western-centric as it doesn't consider Indigenous and other cultures 
who have lived with Earth in harmony for thousands and thousands of years. A lot of people do link the sustainability movement to being one that only started in the in the 60s and 70s, whilst that's actually false. It's There's been people, cultures that have been living sustainably with the Earth for thousands of years, but unfortunately the Western world fails to recognise that. So because of all of that, at Sustainability 5.0, in our research and our conversations and our explorations around these topics, Amy and I have been able to break what we feel are the most important five pillars of sustainability into these five elements, of which we will now introduce you to one by one and also show you some practical examples of possible ways that these might be enacted within design practices as well as business in the world. So to start us off, Amy, could you begin? Sure, sure. So the first element that we're going to start off with is the element of spirit. And spirit isn't necessarily about the dogma that we oftentimes associate with spirit or spirituality, but spirit is more about connecting to something greater than ourselves. It's about guiding us to this deeper and more meaningful connection within sustainability. So spirit as an element is meant to inform our relationship to our human and non-human kin, which means it's interconnecting us to something greater than ourselves. And I feel like This is such a vital component of sustainability because if we don't see ourselves as part of something bigger and wider than just this physical realm, it's very easy to center ourselves and our own needs in everything that we do. So spirit invites us into a deeper and yeah, a deeper understanding of the world around us, not just in the physical sense. Spirit nurtures our creative life force. It grounds us to the knowing that we're an intrinsic part of this entire web of life, not just simply the human web of life. And connection to the element of spirit allows us to tap into our full potential and our purpose and, you know, this ultimate spring of creativity. Because if you think about the realm beyond the physical and I think for so many of us we can relate to this if we think about moments of quiet that we've had or moments where we've become really inspired this inspiration doesn't come necessarily from the physical realm but it's this oftentimes this quite profound experience of feeling like you're receiving something that is coming from elsewhere and I don't know if you can relate to that experience but for me oftentimes feeling tapped into that kind of spring of creativity does feel like that. So spirit's just this element that invites us into connection in a deeper sense beyond the physical realm. Um, And it allows us to connect to our full potential and our purpose. It acknowledges that there's more than just what we see with our eyes. So in terms of a practical sense, building that connection to spirit really begins with yourself. So it is very much an individual practice because the way that you relate to spirit is going to be different to the way that I relate to spirit, which is different to the way that you, Anya, relate to spirit. And so I I feel like it's very much an individual exploration and an individual practice. But there are some really beautiful examples that I like to look at that kind of just challenge our notions of the world. So Monica Gagliano, she's a scientist who works with plants. 
I was listening to some of her research quite recently, and she was talking about how through her scientific research, she was able to prove that plants are cognizant, so they can learn and adapt to different situations. And they actually speak to each other or to, I'm not exactly sure who they're speaking to, but they have this ability to speak by emitting, by emitting these low vibrational frequencies. She's found in this research that they're far more intelligent and complex that we, than what we give them credit for. And so for me, this speaks to the nature of the spirit of the plant. And if you look to, I guess, indigenous cultures, they're, they're always attributing spirit to all life forms. So it's not just humans that have spirit, it's plants that have spirit. It's, you know, animals that have spirit. And through this research, she's found that while we in a Western context often deem ourselves as being the only intelligent kind of life forms, the only, I guess, sentient kind of life forms, she's through her research found that plants are able to learn and they're able to adapt. And to me, that speaks to the spirit of the plant. It speaks to a far more broad and exciting way of relating to the world than just simply this very physical way that we tend to relate to the world in our Western societies. Another experiment that I think really speaks to this element is an experiment by Masaru Emoto, and he was a Japanese scientist who was working with water, and he was looking at the vibrational frequencies of water, and in these experiments he was doing, he did these experiments where he played certain sounds to water molecules, and then he would freeze them and observe what they looked like. He did experiments where he said things like, I hate you, and he played like death metal, and um, kind of gave these really low energy words to the water molecules, and then he would freeze them and observe them under um, a microscope. And then he also did experiments where he said beautiful things to the water, like, I love you, and, you know, you're beautiful, and um, thank you, and things like this, and played beautiful music to them, and also froze those and looked at them under the microscope. And what he observed was that the water molecules that he had said beautiful things to froze in these really beautiful um, you know, kind of snowflake-looking crystals, and the water molecules that he had frozen, that he had said, you know, not so nice things to, had really quite ugly and very different formations than the molecules that had had beautiful things said to them. And I think, to me, it just speaks again to the spirit that is in life beyond what we see with our own two eyes. Another example of the element of spirit, I think, is in Peter Kelly's Earth is Hiring book. And this was such a profound book for me, and I've spent a lot of time working with PETA. She talks about business as having its own, as being its own entity. She talks about interacting with entities which are, you know, kind of come to you as inspiration and want to be I guess, birth through you into a physical form, perhaps as a business or as a, a creative, I guess, creation into the world. Yeah, she talks about these ideas as being entities that kind of tap you on the shoulder and that when you interact with these entities, and you can take this as an example in business, if you have a business, and this is something that both Anya, you and I do with um, Spirit of Design and with Sustainability 5.0, is interact with the spirit of that business 
And what that does, even if perhaps it's a bit too like woo-woo and out there for you, what it does is it actually disconnects you from being the business or being the thing that you are creating and acknowledges it that there is, I guess, this kind of creative force that exists that you are simply allowing to come through you into a physical form in the world, whether that's online or whether that's a tangible product or a business. And by interacting with that entity, with that, with the spirit of that creative force in a way that acknowledges it as being separate from yourself, you can actually ask questions and um, interact with what is it that this entity or this spirit wants to bring forth in its creation, rather than what is it that I as a human feel like I want to bring forward, it's allowing yourself to have that bigger perspective and to interact with things beyond, I guess, our own mental states, our own what we see in the physical. And so I guess spirit is probably the hardest element to grasp because it is spirit. (laughs) It's not tangible. You can't touch it. You can't see it. It's just something that can be felt. But I believe that when you interact with and you're open to the idea of there being this creative energies and these forces and these life forces that exist beyond the physical realm, we then take an approach to everything we do that is so different from the approach that we take when we see everything as being in the physical. So if we're acknowledging the spirit in every life force, we then have to acknowledge the spirit of the plants that we work with if we're using fibers. We then acknowledge the spirit of you know, the earth, we then acknowledge the spirit of everything that we interact with. And that acknowledgement of there being something more than just the physical allows us to recognize that we are not the center of all things and that we are just a part of this interconnected web. And it informs the way we create and informs the way that we show up in our businesses and in the way we design and everything like that. Do you want to take us on to our next element then, Anya? Thank you for sharing that with us, Amy, and such pertinent examples. So the next element, earth. So this is a big one. Going on from some of the points that you shared with us, Amy, earth is really underlined with this deep understanding of our intrinsic interconnectedness with the earth and all life on this planet. Just as we've mentioned before, humans are only one part of this ecosystem we're not the part, we're not at the top of the hierarchy. And we really need to understand that we're interconnected with all other species on this planet, whether we like them or not, we're interconnected with the earth. And therefore, we are stewards of Mother Earth. And it is through our lives, how we live, how we do business, how we create, how we design, that we need to find ways to actually enact reciprocity, listening, reverence and responsibility for this planetary home this is our home and it's not a one-way relationship imagine if you were in a relationship with someone and someone just kept taking and taking and taking from you and that other was never receiving anything the relationship wouldn't last for very long so as stewards of mother earth how can we find ways within how we live and how we create to create these reciprocal relationships with the earth and her species, to listen to the earth, to hold reverence and respect, 
and also step into our responsibility for caring for the earth and making sure that the earth is at its utmost well-being for future generations to come. So as part of Earth, we look forward and envision futures that are in symbiosis with all life on this planet in deep gratitude and respect for ecological boundaries. We need to find ways to reseed, refuel and regenerate the land through our practices. So how could we do that? How could our businesses, what we design, what we make and create, how can that actually start to regenerate and refuel the land? How can we start giving back more than we've been taking? And boy, oh boy, have we been taking more? We've been taking too much. So how can we start to, through our practices, reseed, refuel and regenerate the land? How can we show reverence for all life, human and non-human? So this isn't about pushing humans out of the equation, absolutely not, because the earth wants us to thrive. The earth cares about her inhabitants. How can we show reverence for all human life, but also all non-human life, the animals, the insects that we get annoyed by, the species that we, we can't see unless it's under a microscope that we think are so small that don't matter? How can we show reverence for the air that we breathe, for the wind, for all elements of the earth, for the fires, for the water? And how can we then design and make in this co-creative and reciprocal relationship with Earth? What would that look like when we're making and envisioning a future in symbiosis with Mother Earth? We should be asking perhaps during the design, making, creating, living systems that we create, how would Mother Nature do it? Sometimes I feel that we, we need to know all the answers, but going on from one of the points you just made about spirit, Amy, is how can we actually tap into and connect to the energy of Mother Nature um, through going outside and connecting and spending time with her out there and asking for her advice. If Mother Nature was designing this, creating this, making this, living this, what would it look like? So one thing that amazes me all, always is how giving mother nature is no matter how much we take and take and take she just keeps giving she still shows up the next day with air for us to breathe in with the plants with the sunshine with the elements she just keeps giving so how can we find ways to renew and nurture this relationship this relationship that unfortunately so many of us have taken for granted i know i have for a lot of my life that it's something that I've only started connecting with in the past decade or so. And of course, this isn't to say that it's been everyone. There's been a lot of cultures and groups in the world that have lived in this reciprocal relationship with nature for thousands of years. So I gave a lot of questions there. So now I'd like to offer up some practical examples of what this might look like, of what connecting with the earth, living in reciprocity with the earth, but also designing and making with the earth might look like. And I think just to start off, I'd like to say that to be able to do that, there needs to be regular time spent outdoors in nature. You know, when we're working, when we're designing, so much of it is inside. I know I spend most of my time inside. I hate to say it, but I do. And I think so many of us are like this, but how could the world look if we started transitioning our workplaces, our educational spaces, and so on to be more interwoven 
with the outdoors? What would it look like if we learnt outside? What would it look like if we worked outside, even if it's for a bit of time each day? And this connecting with nature through actually spending time in nature actually allows for our creativity to flow as well as our well-being to be nourished. So some practical examples of businesses that are already taking on this element of earth within their design practices. A good one is definitely Far Farm. So we've talked about Far Farm before, but they create textiles through agroforestry methods in the Amazon. So what agroforestry methods are is it's an agricultural process that's mimicked by Mother Nature's rhythms, particularly in the rainforest. So when they're planting the textile crops like linen, um, hemp, cotton, uh, organic cotton, I think there's a few others, maybe banana, it is planted amongst other crops. So it's planted amongst food crops, just like the rainforest does. So in the rainforest, all these different species are grown interlaced with one another meaning large grows with small and they all support one another and that's what creates a thriving healthy ecosystem so far farm have started a few years ago growing textile fibers this way in the amazon they're growing these textile crops and in between that they're growing food crops and whole communities are able to use the food crops for themselves but also to sell on and um, create economical sustainability and far farm come in and they take the um, textile crops and they're able to weave it into sustainable materials for designers to use and this sort of process these sorts of farming processes are actually moving us away from monocultures that we now know are quite destructive for the land and moving us towards regenerative agricultural practices that actually regenerate the soil regenerate the land they bring the rains so far farm are an awesome awesome example of how we can look to nature for guidance on how to design another example would be the fiber shed movement fiber shed completely grow their own textiles from the ground up they spin them and then sew clothing from that within a 200 mile radius so it was started in america first but now there's fiber sheds all around the world it's a very big community aspect they have a big educational aspect and they really place this importance on place and localism by growing textile crops that will grow well in that sort of area and adapting it to their local environments but then also involving community and teaching them about care for the land within their place. Another practical example for Earth Enacted would be Botanical Inks and they are a natural dye studio in Bristol in the UK and they harness environmentally sustainable colours from the local landscape so they do this by gathering different wild plants, harvesting organic produce and also recycling farm and food waste. And they extract colours from that along with well-sourced traditional natural dye extracts as well as they run educational workshops around this. So they dye for different brands but then they also teach people how to dye using food waste and different plants found and foraged in the forests around Bristol. So what this might also look like on a personal level 
reciprocal relationship with Mother Nature is by receiving her grounding and well-being and that we also receive in the form of foods and fibers so that's what that's another way that we receive from mother nature we don't only receive feeling good when we go outside and that's obviously adding to our well-being she makes us feel grounded but we receive a lot from her in terms of food and also fibers that create clothes if that's what we're receiving from mother nature then how do we find ways to give back so it is this reciprocal two-way relationship and we're not just being this person who only ever shows up when we want something and then we take it then we're like ciao see you later but how do we actually get into an ebb and flow with mother nature what do we have to give in return some some potential starting points could be planting small wildflower gardens for bees in your yard or it could be in your workplace or on your rooftop be picking up rubbish on your walk to work with the energy and intention of care for her could be doing some beach cleanups with your workmates on the weekend. It could be joining a planting day with your community or as part of your business. It could be having a regenerative element as part of your business. And what I mean by that is perhaps a percentage of your sales or your profits go to planting trees or regenerating the soil or working with communities that create sustainable farms and practices. Or even simply spending time meditating and feeling deeply grateful, so, so grateful for all the ways we are cared for by her. So one thing I've started doing in my own meditation practices in the morning is going outside and sitting against a tree I have in my backyard and just feeling, just tapping into immense, immense love in my body and sending that out to the tree and sending that out to the earth and then feeling it come back and then sending it out. Just this deep gratitude of everything that we are given by this planetary home that we have. Did you have anything to add for Earth, Amy? Or would you like to continue us for ancient wisdom? Yes, I think I'll continue us. I think you did a beautiful job sharing that element. And I agree with everything that you said. So I'll move us on to our next element, which is ancient wisdom. And I think this is, again, well, all of these pillars are are vital components of holistic sustainability, but they all also interweave with each other. And you'll see that as we go through the five of them, that there's many crossovers. Um, But with ancient wisdom, this element is all about looking to and acknowledging the ancient and indigenous wisdoms that hold key voices at the round table of sustainability. And what we mean by that is that there are these ancient wisdoms of our ancestors and of indigenous peoples that still live today um, that hold really important messages for how to live in harmony with the natural world. And so when we are listening to these voices and to these ancient ways of knowing and when we're respectfully and reverently allowing ourselves to be students of these ways they can guide us in really profound ways and have really profound keys to teach us in how to live in in harmony with the earth and with one another and so i think with ancient wisdom a lot of it is looking to the past for guidance on the future and a lot of people the argument that I hear often is like, oh, but we don't want to go back to living 
in you know huts and teepees and whatever but that's not what it's about it's about looking to the wisdom of the ancients and looking to the ways in which they lived in harmony with the land and they still do ways that we really have forgotten in our modern cultures and ways that really invite us back into a deeper and far more meaningful understanding of sustainability than we currently hold in the West. It also is about acknowledging the diversity of values and life ways and making sure that there is a diversity of values and life ways included in the mainstream narratives. Ancient wisdom teaches us ecological reverence and it is so often about being great stewards of the land and indigenous peoples and earth-based cultures have always been seen and held themselves as guardians of the land and as stewards of the land and they have done this brilliantly for thousands of years. I think there's something really profound about returning to rituals and ceremony uh, and I think that we've really lost touch with that in our Western cultures, and it's left this deep longing for something more meaningful and deeper in our lives. You can see that in the ways that, you know, in the mental illnesses that are present in our in our modern day cultures, you can see that in the way that we feel so deeply disconnected. You can see that in our lack of ritual around important life events like quote-unquote becoming a man or becoming a woman but that those rituals of aging those rituals of uh, maturing um, and those have been really important for generations and they today can guide us ancient wisdom also reminds us to think about intergenerational equity and many indigenous cultures have this idea around seven generations or the thousand year rule and this i guess rule looks towards looking backwards so that we have the perspective of the wisdom of the past that we can learn from the mistakes that were made in the past but we can also learn from um, the wisdom that's held in the past and then also looking forward to the generations that will come after us and acknowledging that we have that the actions that we take today will directly affect and influence the outcome for generations to come not just our immediate children that we may or may not have right now but generations on from now and having that perspective and that kind of ancient way of looking at things that traditional indigenous way of looking at things gives us far more perspective when we create and when we design things because when we're having that perspective of intergenerational equity when we're having that perspective of seven generations back uh, and seven generations forward we're looking to the world in a, in a really different way we're not just simply creating for the now but we're we're creating and we're um designing looking both forward and back and i think that's really profound and really powerful way to i guess ground and anchor our practices for sustainability in a really practical way so some of the practical examples of ancient wisdom or indigenous wisdom is the honorable harvest and planting in cycles the honorable harvest is a native american indian principle of never taking more than what is needed and never taking more than half of what is available and always honoring the plant and asking for permission to harvest. And it it centers around these ideas of really 
having the perspective of future that is to come. So not taking too much so that the plant can still regenerate and can still reproduce in ways that um, haven't been, our, our harvesting hasn't taken too much. But it also is about honoring the spirit of the plant and recognizing it as its own spirit, as, as its own life force and asking permission, which I think is a really profound thing to bring into our practices as designers. If we're creating with what we call in our Western cultures, natural resources. Those natural resources are their own life forces. We have taken life from something to create something else. And that's okay, but it's about recognizing that this is a life force that we are using to create something else and asking permission, am I able to use you to create something new with? Is there enough of this quote-unquote natural resource for me to use it in in whatever I'm creating. And, uh, another practical example is, which also ties in with the idea of spirit, is um, in New Zealand here, uh, the iwi down in Wanganui put forward a court case that saw personhood granted to the Wanganui River. And that personhood means that it has been granted to the river means that the river has the same inalienable rights as a human does. So the river has its own rights and it's protected in that same kind of a way that our own human rights would be protected. And I think that taking that kind of perspective, taking that kind of indigenous perspective to the life forces that are around us, that we rely on, that rely on us actually right now as well, is really powerful. One of the other practical examples of ancient wisdom that we can bring into our design spaces and bring into the conversations around sustainability is acknowledging the different intelligences, which is something that indigenous cultures do. In indigenous cultures, we don't see there as being a singular intelligence. Within our Western societies, we tend to kind of think of intelligence as being based on intellect, as being a mind thing. But within kind of these more ancient wisdoms, they teach us that there are different intelligences. There's an intelligence of the heart. There's the intelligence of the mind as well. There's the intelligence of the spirit and the intelligence of the emotion. And there are all of these different intelligences. And when we bring that into our work, we can allow ourselves to tap into those different intelligences and have this relationship with our our work and with our creativity that allows us to think beyond simply the mind. And so when we have also conversations around sustainability, we can look at these different intelligences and step away from being purely based on processes and all of this kind of thing and include these intelligences that allow us to acknowledge that there are life forms beyond the, what we see with our eyes and that there is a spirit to everything that lives and that, you know, our emotions and our intuition guide us to make choices and decisions that perhaps our intellect wouldn't. And so I think by acknowledging things like the different intelligences is a really practical way to bring in that ancient way of thinking. A really great practical example is from Daniel Wildcat's book, Saving the Planet with Indigenous Knowledge. And he talks about indigenous dwellings as being a really practical example of how we can design, um, how, how housing was designed 
with sustainability in mind and designed out of these intimate relationships with the lands in which the Native American tribes were living in. And so he talks about how currently in the state, the houses that are designed today, these kind of modern square-shaped housing that um, most Americans live in today, are, from his perspective, not only ugly, but also extremely wasteful from an energy perspective. So they they are not taking into account, you know, the landscape with which in they're built. They're not taking into account, you know, the direction of the sun or the wind or what's in the in the location that they live in. They're built without considerations of sustainability or the environment with which in they're built. And he talks about, in contrast, how Native American Indian tribes would build their dwellings as a response to this relationship that they had with the land. So the orientation of the houses, the location of the houses, would take into account the broader landscape, they would take into account solar, they would take into account wind and the microclimate features of their environment, and they were very much built in response to that. So, for example, the plains people who would build these kind of houses out of straw, they would build with what was immediately available to them, but they would also build these houses that they adapted to their environments and that became really resilient for the environments that they were built in. And he talks about how the native people would design their housing with knowledge of the environments that they lived in. So if they lived near rivers, they knew the flood cycles and they knew when it was going to flood and when it wasn't going to flood. They knew how far to build away from the river and what wasn't a safe distance to build from. And so they would build in relationship to their environments and they very much had intimate knowledge of what was available for use and what was, you know, what happened in their environments. And he's contrasting that with how in the States, a lot of the time, um, housing today is built on these flood paths. And because we've become so human-centered in our design and our ways of thinking, we think that we can intellectualize our way out of or design our way around nature and her cycles and her rhythms. And so in the States, when they're building on these flood paths, they think that, you know, engineering um, is going to be able to prevent floods and by damming and all of these kinds of things, they'll be able to avoid that happening rather than having a relationship with the earth and recognizing that she has cycles and, and, you know, respecting that and having this kind of respectful relationship with mother earth where they're like, okay, well, this is her cycle and this is where she is allowing us to live and where she is not allowing us to live and taking that perspective into design and really having that reverence and that kind of of intimate relationship with the natural world and with what we design with the resources or the the life that we choose to design with when we take that in mind and we kind of have that perspective and that relationship to the natural world and we have that intimate knowledge of it and we bring in that ancient perspective it informs how we design and it informs our relationship with the natural world and we are responding to that and we're we're creating with that and that allows us to have a, a far more sustainable relationship to the way we create and design and live did you have anything to add to that no that's awesome great examples thanks for sharing that amy and also really important to note that these elements 
aren't in any particular order of importance. It's not a dogmatic thing. This is just how we've placed them. They move around all the time and they interweave into one another and they are ever evolving. Community. Community is the lifeblood of our humanness. We need community as humans. Human beings, us, we were made for connection. And we've lost a lot of that sense of community in our modern Western culture and society. And we really need to start creating community again if we want to thrive and create this sustainable world that so many of us desire. So cultivating community and connection can be done through various gatherings, online and also in person. And I would stress that in person is probably more important these days because we've gone so online, even though there is such a beauty to cultivating community online and meeting people. And that's how you and I have met Amy. And that's been a beautiful thing, but also finding ways to create in-person connections through gatherings with people, sharing experiences, conversations, hardships. And also I think a major aspect of community is coming together with others to not only talk about and be in the grief of what is happening now in our world, but so much of the sustainability movement is talking about what's happening. We've got 10 years to reverse things or even less now, I think. How, how can we come up with some immediate solutions? But very little time and effort is placed on envisioning, envisioning the world that we want to see 5, 10, 20, 100, 1,000 years into the future. So cultivating community and bringing people together to envision these possible collective sustainable futures and I stress collective because our futures not future there are multiple futures our futures are with one another and also important to note here community doesn't mean just with other people it's community with the earth the earth is a member of our community with all the species on the earth they are all a part of our community all the elements of the earth as well all part of our community it's important not to undermine or not include them so storytelling and rituals are an important element of community as you've touched on amy just beforehand we've lost that sense of importance of rituals and really impregnating and making important particular moments in our lives storytelling mm. storytelling has been happening for tens of thousands of years and it's such beautiful and powerful communicator and when we come together to tell stories i think magic can happen and imagine if we started doing that to actually create the world that we want to see and of course it's already happening but we need it more widespread community can be co-creation with nature as i mentioned nature is a part of our community how can we make and create with nature so really removing this hierarchy of humans at the top but also more going into our human societal systems and particularly for design getting rid of this designer hero syndrome where we see in so many design spaces definitely in fashion where the designer is at the top and they're heralded for all this work they've done and there's this ego attached and when really 
it was a team effort to get there. It, it took a multitude of people, whether that's a small business or a large business, it always takes a multitude of people. No one is ever self-made. Community also relates to supply chain community. So supply chain, perhaps not the right word, but we do need to work on getting different word, perhaps ecosystem, design ecosystem, production ecosystem, making ecosystem, community. So all the players within the system that it took to create that garment, to create that product, to create that piece of technology, there's a multitude of players there, a multitude of co-creators. How can they become more empowered and more a part of that co-creative process with you? How can you treat it as a community as opposed to just people or natural resources that do and give you things? in exchange for money? How can it be more of a reciprocal relationship that cultivates community? So some more practical examples of what community may look like in practice and how designers in the contemporary field are enacting it. So one example I would like to give is Zazi. And Zazi is a women's wear brand that create beautiful clothing for women, which is made out of upcycled materials, but particularly they work with artisans all around the world. And artisans add in a lot of their own handcrafts into the work and into the pieces. So it's a very co-creative process. A lot of the work that they're creating isn't um, just designed from the offset. It's made with the artisans based on their skills, based on what they want to design. And that's very much communicated in all their work. And it's a really beautiful brand community that Zazi have been creating. Another example of how you could create community in design is fairly new brand from New York called Fora, F-F-O-R-A. And what they do is they create functional and beautifully designed accessories for people in wheelchairs. Their accessories are actually compatible with 170 plus models of manual wheelchairs. So what they've done is they've actually worked with people in wheelchairs for a number of years, just researching their needs and the type of wheelchairs and accessibility issues they have to design these functional yet beautiful accessories, which really hasn't been done before. So they are designed and created alongside the community of people and their real life experiences. And differently abled people are usually excluded out of the design process and out of the design consideration that considers aesthetics at all. Their aim is to spark a conversation, to inspire a radical shift in perspective that completely removes barriers for differently abled individuals. So not only is it about beautiful and functional design for differently abled people, but it's about sparking this conversation and starting to create the shift in perspective to remove these blocks that we have in society for people that are different just like to give one more example of community because this is one we really love and is close to our hearts and that's the Lissom magazine. So I interviewed Dorte in our last episode for this podcast and she's the founder of Lissom and what she and the magazine has created which has been digital for the past three years and has only now this month gone into print. What they've done through their vision of 
communicating sustainable fashion and design, creating a space for visioning this new future is they've brought together through their vision all these individuals and their unique voices and put that together into this most beautiful, poetic and also quite provocative publication. So I think that's a really beautiful example of community coming together to create beauty and envision future possibilities. Perhaps you could finish us off with the last element. Perfect. So the last element is the element of self. And we both really believe that true sustainability begins within, and it begins with yourself. And I think this is one of the elements that is so often overlooked when we talk about sustainability, because it's really within yourself that this relationship to sustainability begins. And it's this outward ripple effect of this kind of inner landscape of yourself that is both profound and undervalued. It's the sustainability that begins within ourselves and it's when we are able to have this sense of sustainability within our own being, when our inner landscape is looked after and when we have cared for ourselves, that we then have the ability to look beyond ourselves and extend that into our work if we don't have this knowing of ourselves if we don't have this inner resilience how are we supposed to go forward and create things with care and with intention when we haven't even given that and we haven't even afforded that to ourselves so beginning with ourselves is really an important place to start it looks like beginning with self-care. Self-care is so important and it's such an essential element of keeping our creative channels opening. Things like nourishing food, things like movement, things like spiritual care and community and play and having fun, especially in a time like this where for so many of us, the conversations around sustainability feel really heavy and really dense and can feel really like we spend a lot of time in grief often. So it's super important to include elements of play and lightness and and fun in everything that we do so that we are bringing this different kind of energy to what we create. Sustainability of the self looks like boundaries, knowing when to say no, because when we're saying a no to something, we're also saying a yes to another thing. So Every time that we're saying a yes to something, it it becomes a no to something else. So setting our boundaries and knowing what is a no and what is not, what is a yes for us is so important. It looks like defining or redefining what success looks like for you and where have you taken on markers of success that don't belong to you, um, meaning markers of success that you've been taught by your parents are the right ones or conditioned by society to believe is what success is. But can we look at as a part of sustainability of the self, can we look at what does success really look like for me and what is going to make me feel fulfilled and creative and successful and thriving within everything that I do? It's empathy for yourself and for others. This also makes you a better designer. Self looks like connecting to your own voice. It looks like connecting to your purpose and your creative expression. It looks like finding that through introspection and through developing intuition and presence with yourself. And really, if you don't first have the sustainability of the self, then how can you have sustainability in any other aspects of your life? Um, 
for me, for a very long time, I was really concerned about sustainability kind of in the outer world, but I was such a martyr in my inner world. And I very much didn't have this understanding of the sustainability of the self. And it wasn't until I, I guess, matured to the point where I recognized that a sustainability of the self was so vital and important and that everything began and ended with me. Everything that I created started with me. And so if my inner landscape wasn't in a state of sustainability for myself, then I wasn't going to be able to create anything that had a sense of sustainability in the outer world. And so when I recognized that, I allowed myself to step away from kind of this state of martyrdom that I felt was, at the time, felt was, I guess, really... (sighs) I don't know what the word is. But it just felt like I was such a great person because (laughs) I was always living in this state of martyrdom and sacrificing myself for the greater good. But what I wasn't recognizing was that it actually affected so much. It affected everything that I touched. And it wasn't until I allowed myself to kind of work on my inner landscape first that everything else that I created had this touch of sustainability naturally because I had I had given that to myself first. So some practical examples of how self works is creating self practices. That can look different for every single person. For some people it's meditation, for some people it's moving your body, for 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 all of us it tends to be nourishing food, self-care, fun, play, you know, and that looks different from all of us. For me it looks like having a balance of like deep and dirty I like a little bit of hip-hop mixed in with like my spiritual practice. That for me gives me that sustainability of the self because it allows me to be light at the same time as being deep. But everybody has their own practice and it's through, I guess, that introspection that you're able to develop practices that work for you. And it might be different for different seasons of your life. But giving yourself the space to figure out what that is so that you can create self-practices that really nourish and nurture that inner landscape. There's some really great apps like Headspace, mindfulness apps, you know, practical examples can be taking mindfulness breaks within work hours, just taking moments where you can take some space or you can go out into nature and take a breath. And um, there's so many ways in which you can work on that inner sustainability but I think that it really begins first with the listening to yourself and really taking some time to be introspective and really look at what is needed right here. I think when you begin to give yourself that when you begin to have that deeper relationship with yourself where you're able to actually listen to what is needed by your physical body, by your spiritual body, by your emotional body, you can begin to develop those practices that really work and really nourish that inner landscape. Mm. Is there anything you want to add to that? I think it's so important how you mentioned this might look really different for a lot of people. And I think you need to try a lot of different things usually to start with to find what works for you or perhaps it's an evolving process. And I know it definitely is for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an evolving process. I think it changes as you grow. I think it changes based on what season you're in. And, you know, 
it's it i think i think that's why it requires that introspection because you have to adjust and you have to listen and yeah i think what you just said though about trying a lot of different things when you're just starting out is really helpful because it gives you you can kind of feel what feels good and what doesn't feel good and and again that's that's always a guiding that's always great guidance listen to what feels good and what doesn't and that's often the best insight you can get to what practices work for you and what don't Mm, absolutely amazing well yeah i hope that today really just gave you some insight into the five elements these five pillars that we feel are essential for a more holistic conversation around sustainability a more holistic sustainable practice and um we'd love to hear your thoughts and we'd love to kind of hear what came up for you as you listen to the different elements and if there's any questions you had or and i think this is a conversation that we will explore further we plan on exploring the different elements individually later um so that we can go more in depth and really explore them individually because they they are really big juicy topics and we really just wanted to give you an overview of the different elements before we dove into them and really unpack each one for you in later episodes. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. For today's show notes, to get in touch or sign up to our mailing list, you can find links at the bottom of this episode page. And if you are new to our community, then head on over to our Instagram at sustainability 5.0 and our website www.sustainability5.com and follow along to stay up to date with our upcoming online and in-person events if you found value in today's conversation then we would so appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave us a review through this you're helping others to find these important conversations have a beautiful and wonderful week everyone bye bye